Time is absolutely crazy because I promise you this season of Black Stage just started and now we are in the final three episodes of the season. Uh, today's episode is featuring Vincent Cobb II and Rasheed Coleman. They are the founders of Summer House Institute. Uh, and I'm really excited for this episode because you're really going to get a masterclass in what it means to be a good partner. I think that a lot of people go into entrepreneurship and partnerships and, and groups and collectives. Uh, and it's not easy. Easy, right? As you're trying to scale an organization, especially um, as Rashid and Vince did, uh, they scaled an organization in the midst of a pandemic. And so you're going to hear how they were able to kind of stay true to each other, uh, stay true to, to the mission, and really kind of learn how life basically can take you down a windy road. But it's about how you get yourself back up and really kind of make the impact that you set forth for yourself. So Really excited for you all to hear this episode. Very, very grateful to Vince and, and Rashid for taking the time to speak with me and telling me their story. And uh, this is The Black Stage. Okay, so I am sitting here in conversation with my guys. I'm so excited to have uh, this conversation with you. It's been a long time coming. Uh, we've got some global, uh, you know, trendsetters on, on the podcast today. Uh, I like that. Uh, I like that. You know, you know, you know I try to, try to hype you guys up uh, to get us going, but... We got uh, Vincent Cobb, the second, and Rasheed Coleman, uh, the founders uh, of Summer House Institute. How you guys doing? Man. Doing well, man. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Good to be on here with you, Black Stage Podcast. We've already given a bunch of shout outs. So we've been telling people all day that we want to be on here with you. So excited. So I'm so honored. I'm so honored. So when this when this episode comes out, you know, I'm just going to be expecting all the social media engagement. Ah, right. Right. Famous. They are famous. They have thousands and thousands of followers. So the price just went up for you. (laughs) Co-sponsorship. So, look, uh, you know, obviously, I've known you guys for a couple of years now and, you know, seeing you guys just grow your immaculate at this point organization that's doing so much impactful work, but we know that, um, you know, it takes, it takes a lot to build something, right. to build the house, if you, if you will. And so I'm really excited to just kind of like dive right in and just really kind of like start to talk about the journey of, of how this came to be. You know, I know you both had your own individual stories of kind of how you came into this work and how you guys met each other. So before we get into like the how you all met, Rashid, how did you get started in, in, in the journey of becoming Rashid Coleman? And then I'll ask Vince the same thing. Uh, a lot of trial and error. Um, I think that, you know, I'm, well, one, I think therapy has helped me a lot to kind of like realize not even just who I am, but where I am and the space and place that I hold. I'm a person that can kind of like shy away from the limelight, so to speak. Like, I don't really like talking about what we do or how we do it. Um, but I realize the how necessary it is and how important it is for people to understand, like, where we come from, how we've got to where we are. And I think that's part of it is I think to arrive at, at where I am right now, um, just been shedding a lot of layers, shedding a lot of layers of the person I thought I was, shedding a lot of layers of, you know, who I thought I was supposed to be and just really realizing that, like, I've been here all along, you know, and kind of just living in that for a second. Um, just being able to just be like, you know what, here's here's where you are, here's what you experienced. And realizing that those experiences don't really they attributed to how I dealt with problems, but not necessarily who I am. So uh, I would say that it took me 33 years to become 
not even the best version of myself, but like the version of myself I am right now, um, you know, on, on the journey to become the best version of myself. So uh, it's been a lot of, uh, I really got to stick with, it. it's just been a lot of shedding the layers, man, and peeling back layers of like, okay, you know, these these things are part of who you are, but they don't define who I am. So yeah, now I'm, I'm rediscovering who I am, even in this moment, you know, as a parent, as, you know, a business partner, as a friend, as a dad, yes, I said parent. Um, yeah, just just kind of rediscovering um, who that is every every day, man. Every day. Vince, I ask you the same question. Becoming. Sure. I think my journey was really inspired by um, service to young people. Honestly, uh, I did not anticipate to be on the education path. That was not my goal. Um, I really wanted to go into high earning position of being like a doctor um, in college, but I think. What really inspired me was the ability to take risk and understand uh, my greater purpose and really just a little small internship during the summer in Syracuse, New York, with a group of high school students that really encouraged me to say, like, this is the path that you need to go on. So even in my journey into Philly, just taking a risk with education pioneers when I moved to Washington, D.C. for a bit and then Teach for America, where I landed a job here in Philadelphia and then ended up meeting um, Rashid. It was um, a journey that I, I did not expect. And there was a lot of unknowns, um, but just walking in these doors and just really being available to the energy of what was kind of leading with um, within me to say that this is the life, this is the kind of service and the kind of work I want to do. Um, it led to a greater vision. Uh, so my path has been very much inspired. That, that's all I have to go off of is like hopping from place to place, Syracuse, Philly, I mean, Syracuse, DC to Philly and just being like, you know what? This is where I'm landing. This is where I'm feeling good. This is where I feel like this is my niche. And so just really going along with that. And here we are today talking to you. <laughs> so, here we are. Yep. So for all those who don't know, Rashid is from Philadelphia. Vince, you just mentioned you're from Syracuse. And, you know, we hear how you, you know, Vince, how you got to Philadelphia. How did it all kind of come together and and just kind of just how did it how did it happen? Like, how did how did the Vincent? Uh, first, let, me, let me say this first. My daughter is behind the camera. So right, right. There's going to be times where I, hey, here's the thing. Here's the thing. We're, you, this podcast is about keeping it real. So there's little people in this house that are, are trying to be kept. People right. have to parent. People yes. have to parent while doing interviews, so it's fine. Right, right. Um, so it's she's on my lap at some point. Just <laughs> right. there we go. No, that's why. Um, well, go ahead. You, you can take that question away. Yeah. No. I mean, it was. I I would say in sincerity, it was really divine intervention, and I, there's no way because I just like feel like my personality at the time when I joined Teach for America, I only intended to stay a year in Philadelphia. I did not like Philadelphia at all. It was not my thing. I didn't want to be here. Um, and it was a happenstance interview with Rashid that we began to connect around like just values and even our affinity for having black male educators in our life that really changed the trajectory and changed everything for us that put me put us on the path to kind of connect. And so literally he was like, yo, we busted up during the interview. He was like, yo, we uh, could catch something to eat around the corner or whatever. And we ended up meeting and we just hit it all. Then we became roommates and then led to this idea of sitting on a couch one night saying like, yo, we're educators in buildings where we feel a lot of frustration of being black men and being unheard. Um, we should do something about it. So we really came up with an idea, pen to paper to be able to say like, 
we want to create an experience where everyone can kind of come into this idea of what it means to be a black man in a school building. And we started a conference and that's exactly how this journey started. Like I said, no intentions to stay, but literally I found family here. I found friendship here. I found a vision here and I found an organization here. So it became my life literally. And so um, yeah. I will also add, I did not say come around the corner of grass on the heat. I was working at nightlife at the time. I was finishing grad school. Um, I was still working at a bunch of bars and stuff like that. And so I'm from here. Um, so there's not many places we can go that I'm not going to know somebody. Right. And so that was why I invited him. I'm like, yo, come out. Like, you know what I mean? Like, maybe just come out and see what he's hitting for. And he actually came. You know, there's a lot of times you invite people out to places, especially at their first introduction. And they don't necessarily like still follow through, but he actually came. He came with his little and brother. And that was not my personality. Yeah, he came with his little brother. And then from there, it just kind of like, at all. it just grew organically. And I mean, to be completely transparent, I was looking for a place to live at the time. My mom, who had me very young, I think she had me at 15, going on 16. She got remarried and about to have another baby. I had to move back home after my roommate at the time wasn't paying the rent. He had a gambling problem. Um, and so I had to go back home. And so while I was at home interviewing for everything, I came, you know, I came across him and he was like, yo, I'm about to move. I mean, even that whole story, like he was living with somebody else in Philly for a while, driving back and forth from DC. So I think like both of our situations, right? That even yeah, his guy sister introduced us. Yeah, I think both of us crazy. were just enduring situations at the time, trying to get through something to get to a place. Um, and then we both kind of like landed at this place simultaneously. I think like what has made our partnership work very well is like a lot of times I'm like, I have very big vision about things and events always is like, they're like, okay, how do we chunk it down? You know, like, what do we gotta do first? How do we get to this place? So I think all of that kind of just was like the perfect mesh of like personality types and just how we kind of approach problems. And here you go, five years later. I definitely, I definitely want to get into like the nitty gritty of like partnerships and how to sustain partnerships and how you all have been able to sustain your partnership uh, for so many years now. But I, I do want to know like the ins and the outs of, of BMEC a little bit more. Can you talk to me a, a little bit about like what, what you guys did during your time leading BMEC? Like, can you tell me about EdFest? Can you, can you kind of like, you know, give us that? that impact yeah. yeah no really it was a groundswell uh uh what we started out to do was really just find anybody that would invest in our idea initially we pitched this idea of a black male convening with teach for america um at the time they were doing dream rise do in partnership with john legend and so we were in sync to run up our program in philadelphia um, but then they switched executive directors at the time. So a switch in leadership caused a little delay. Um, and at that time, I was making my transition out to actually work full time in schools. And so um, really, it was us kind of marketing to the African-American Commission on Black Males for Philadelphia, which was um, headed by the mayor's office. And we pitched the idea to them wrote a report um, talking about the conditions of black males in Philadelphia. And then it led to the lack of black male educators in schools where we end up running into a veteran mentor in Philadelphia and a group of black male educators who really wanted to run with this idea that we had pitched. And so what ended up happening is that kind of support driven by our expansive network, we end up meeting folks like Camelback Ventures, New Schools Venture Fund, like all these incubator programs that were willing to invest in an idea. And really it was with that one small investment from Camelback that really launched 
our career in this social entrepreneurship space because then we end up getting connected to the Echo and Green. And like, you know, it just was a snowball effect of things that happened. A conference that we designed for 350 people, 750 people showed up. And then ultimately 1,100 people showed up annually for this conference. So it really put us on the map with national funders such as Gates, Chan Zuckerberg, Walton, all the big folks um, to say like, these guys are our guys. Um, and then the backing of the incubator programs to say, these guys are legit. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of how we had the runway to kind of run out. Yeah, I gotta I gotta way. say thank you to Steve Vassar. Thank you to Tiffany Thompson. Absolutely. Um, Shamir and Burley. Shamir Burley. There's yep. so many people that like have been instrumental in trying to make sure that we got to this place that like we will be remiss without acknowledging all of them. I mean, even some of the old, uh, you know, board members that we had a part of the organization and even some of the guys that were a part of the fellowship at first, yeah, yeah. Um, we wouldn't be here without 17 guys, yeah. any of any of them, you know, deciding to honestly, like, put some of their ideas to the side to make sure that BMAC grew into what it grew into. So yeah. um, very grateful for everyone that's helped us along the way. And, you know, again, we'll be remiss without acknowledging some of those folks. So. No, I mean, it's it's important. It's important to acknowledge who who helped because nobody got here alone. Right. Like there, there's this idea of the heropreneur that has been able to do everything and was like literally Clark Kent, Superman. Um, but it's it's true that, you know, family, friends, colleagues, community, it's all a, a part of like what builds organizations brick by brick and how we're able to kind of really scale. Right. Whatever scale means uh, for the entrepreneur. I guess my, my next question for you both is like, you know, again, you kind of alluded to this earlier but just kind of like the sustainability of your partnership, right? You guys ha have grown um, enormously um, since the, the two guys who, you know, met that night or whenever you guys met or hung out or whenever the brotherhood began, you know, how have you all been able to sustain um, as, as leaders of organizations and really kind of continue on with the friendship? I'm asking questions that I already know the answer to, but I'm going yeah. to do this for the audience, right? No, 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 no. <laughs> I'd say a lot of luck and um, willingness to let some shit. I mean, can I? I'm sorry. Can I curse? It's fine. Um, let some shit go. I mean, there's a lot of times where you know, if there's a big decision to be made. I think we understand. Like, okay, we. I think we just try to keep the health of the organization at the forefront. You know, like if if we're both making decisions that are beneficial to the organization, we can't lose. Uh, we may disagree on how that needs to happen. Um, but always coming to a common ground. I think that there's very few things that both of us will die on the hill for. So if, if someone is willing to die on the hill for something and be like, no, I'm not moving unless this happens, then you know it is a big deal. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, we give each other room and space. I mean, I'm speaking, well, I'm sure he'll have his own response. But when you give people room and space to be like, all right, fuck, you know, if they do this and it works out, great. But if they do this and it doesn't work, then we got to figure, you know, then we got to figure it out. And I think there's a lot of told you so moments that also occur. Um, but also giving each other that space. I mean, I think we have a ability to be honest with each other in a way that a lot of people, other people wouldn't. Even with sometimes if it results in us coming to a large disagreement. But I think that's with any relationship. If there's any relationship that's never tested, sure. I don't know what that relationship actually, how, how that relationship could actually benefit you. Sure. Um, and I think that we've been able to jump over hurdles and have each other's backs in the moments that we needed to most. And even sometimes when we didn't still be able to come to a common ground or a common understanding of like, okay, 
here's why I, you know, landed where I did and here's why I felt the way I felt. And then just being able to be receptive to whatever the response is going to be. Yeah, I think it's no little known secret is that co-founder partnerships normally do, do not work out right. um, because there's a lot of different personality decisions, the way that people perceive things. But what I land on is trust at the end of the day, even when I don't understand um, or I'm just like he said, just trying to take a risk on, you know, this is not particularly my approach, but, you know, maybe this will work out. And I feel like we land on our feet every time. And so because of that consistency, I'm able to say at the end of the day, like, you know, rise to fall, <laughs> whatever it is, I feel like we're going to go through it together. And I think that is encouraging for me because, you know, being sole CEO and all of that is an enormous challenge within itself. But I love the idea of bouncing ideas back and forth. I love being challenged. I love thinking differently, even when I don't want to be pushed. I think it's a great opportunity to expand your horizons. And so I feel like at the end of the day, that's where we had to kind of fall and resort. And I just think genuinely understanding that this is a genuinely good person that's like running this organization with you and has the best interest at heart and a bigger goal. Aligned values, bigger goals, and kind of mindset kind of helps, you know, in making a partnership, a business partnership for sure. Yeah, I, would, I would even push back on all, all the time our values and goals aren't aligned, but I think it's about having a common vision. Uh, like I have to push, but like I, I think we both want the same thing. It's just like, okay, how we get there maybe a little bit different or we may see things differently but if Vince is like right, I think we should do this it's like all right you think it'll work cool then if it's if it works fantastic if it doesn't okay let's try this you know I think it's it's like it's like it's like taking it's like are we going to take this two hour flight or are we going to do this 17 hour drive right right all <laughs> oh, right now I think a lot of times you know you could benefit from both sometimes you get to the destination quicker but sometimes you need that time to reevaluate and assess like okay is where we're going where exactly where I want to be you know, like we can get there very quickly, but sometimes that drive might, you know, highlight some things. You know, you might see some things as you're going down that down the road, like, uh, okay, now you know what? Now I see why we did this. You know, now now I got some time to reevaluate and assess. You know, you kind of get to learn the landscape differently when you're driving versus when you're flying. So yeah. it's um it, it's a, it's a little bit of both. I mean, yeah. I think that in order for a partnership to genuinely work, you have to have two people who are honestly who honestly at least need to be connected on. If this decision is made, we rocking with it no matter what. Right. And as long as you got that, I feel like you can land on two feet and pivot and adjust accordingly. Right. You know? And what's the bigger picture? So we're right. talking about goals and values. We want to impact people. We do know that. We right. want to have a positive impact in the world. We think our idea works. Those are ideas and goals and values. Now, specifics in terms of the nuances to get there. Sure. There might be some differences, but I think that's what you got to rely on. What's the, what the, what is the bigger picture? Mm -hmm. One of the things that I, I, I get a lot from entrepreneurs uh, when they're looking for feedback about their around their organizations or their ideas, it's like, is is my work too niche? Does it need to be more broad? Do am I limiting myself? Am I putting myself in a corner? And I always say no, because like if you found that there need there's a need for this, then you should lean into it and really kind of build it out. When you thought about kind of going on this journey around like, you know, focusing on like black men and boys, focusing on black male educators. And, and now, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about the work that you're doing with Summerhouse. Uh, was there ever like this pushback um, of like, oh, you're limiting yourself or, oh, why are you focusing on this subset population? Why not all teachers? Right. Like, why, why does it need to just be black male teachers? Did you ever get that? And like, how did you navigate that? Yeah. I mean, people say, why don't you do men of color? Why don't you do 
also include women, black, black women educators. Like, you know, all of it was a thing that it kind of pushed us in kind of different directions and idea and visions of what we had going on. But I'm glad we stayed the course. I'm glad we, we, we focused on black men and boys. We said we were going to do black men and boys and kind of seeing that too. Doesn't mean that it does not lead to probably a greater expansion in the future, but I think you got to get one thing right before we, we move on to the, the broader context. And that's, that's something that we've had to navigate a lot, right? Like I think when we started this, it was of course, black men educators. And then as we got into it, we realized, I mean, just like the black experiences in general is so diverse. And so then it's okay. We need to make sure that all black men in this space are supported. And that in and of itself already adds more pressure to make sure you get it right. So it's like, okay, we know we're focused on this. We know we want this to work and we may, we may not always get it right the first time, but it's not for a lack of trying. And now we're seeing organizations pop up that are men of color that are, um, black and Hispanic males, black and Latinx male. Like, I mean, there's there's so many things that are popping up now, but being with our guys in person and realizing the impact that this work is having on them yeah. made me realize that we are in the right space. Right. You know, like we we narrowed it down to like Vince said, high school, high school students and black male college students. And I think it was the right decision. I mean, while everyone was telling us, you know, you know, what are we gonna do about current educators? We're gonna do about mid-career changers. We did it all. We've done it all before. So it's like now, okay, we know our place in our space. We're gonna attract and get them into this profession. And then we have organizations like Profound Gentlemen that will keep them in the space. Right. Um, But it's, you know what I mean? It's it's really been- Uh, Mario. Mario and Jason. Jason, yeah. Um, And Jason who has moved on now to Walton. Um, It has been cool to see how everyone has evolved. And I think that also put our feet to the fire and like, okay, everyone is, is evolving. Everyone is moving into these new directions. What is ours? Like, what is our new lane? How do we then, you know, not even just keep up, but make sure that we're always constantly evolving and changing to make sure that we're hitting the nail on the head. So it's a, it's a dance. It's like any other relationship. The relationship is a partnership, the relationship to your work. It always is, you know, you always got to fine tune it and, you know, get better as we go. I want, I want to like lean into that point because you all transitioned um, out of BMEC and launched Summerhouse Institute. And I'm just curious, like, how did you lay that down? Right. How did you lay that down and how did you build a new house um, and, and really kind of like reset the, the, the trajectory in which you guys were on? Can you talk to me a little bit about that? You got to find your sweet spot, man. Like we said, we put, did the full gamut of programming from high school, college, current educators. And we had to figure out what was the most um, return on investment for the work that we were putting in. And we felt like guys who are trying to formalize their ideas of what a career in education could look like, which is that transitional period between college and actual career is where we needed to be. We knew we were always good at the attraction piece of getting guys interested in education because of the dynamic we shared and also the greater vision that we put forward. People were naturally attracted to that, which is why we got the crowds we got uh, when we hosted the conferences. And so now it was like putting our stake in the ground and be able to say like, these are the actual guys that we need to work with because these are the future black male educators. High school sometimes was a little too soon. Um, current educators, sometimes you're a little too jaded and you in the system um, to kind of want to continue. And that's a different like realm of work. But in that transitional period, we felt like that is where we best operate in. But we would not have known that unless we did the full <laughs> Monty of what we felt like, you know, what, what kind of where we wanted to be most known for kind of in the, in, in the pipeline. So Summerhouse, where'd that come from? How did it come about? What do you all do now? And, and where is it going? 
so many questions. So many questions. We met with this with this brilliant man. I think Dr. Dubose. Um, <laughs> we, we sat and we were at Penn and talking about names right, and how we right. wanted to introduce ourselves to the space. Yeah. Um, and Summerhouse. We kind of landed on Summerhouse yep. as a result of Brennan. On a whiteboard. Um, on a whiteboard. Yeah, and it was like, you know, all the things that everything intersected a certain way. It was like, okay, this is the natural next step for us. Mm. Um, so, yeah, a huge shout out to you for yes. coming up with the name and kind of like the trajectory where we're trying to go. Yeah. Um, but then at the same time, I was like, okay, like Vince said, it was like, okay, we got to tighten up the rivets. We got to get rid of the fat. And like, how do we focus on one thing that will help us develop a true pipeline into this work? And so we decided on Summer House, which was originally a four week intensive program. It was like the, it was like the real world of education where mm-hmm. guys would come stay, live in Philly for four weeks. Um, they would, you know, meet with practitioners in the field. They would be, you know, staying with, you know, the guys that were the same ages. And I mean, it was supposed to be like a true fellowship. Experience. Yeah. Fellowship experience. COVID happened. Yep. <laughs> Pivot. Uh, Um, trying to raise money and trying to get the program off the ground at the same time. Um, everyone knew the work that we did with BMEC or with the fellowship and it was okay. Like now, how do we reintegrate ourselves into the space? So that was our plan. Give guys $10,000 for the summer, have them live together, have them work with the best of the best. And when they come out of this program, they can now understand what it's like to fully walk into the education space. Well, as much as we can walk into the education space as a black man um, and what that looks like, because it is nuanced. It's a nuance. It's, mm-hmm. The work is nuanced already. Right. Then you throw you being a black man on top of it, it gets even more nuanced. And mm-hmm. so it was like, okay, how can we create the best of the best in this program? How do we create essentially like the echoing green or the camelback of education for black, black men. Yeah. Um, and so that was kind of like the most, the motive behind it was we wanted to create something that was specific for us. That was niche to us, but that also still gave them a, the full gamut of what they could expect in this space. Right. You know, if you want to be a classroom teacher, you want to be an administrator, you want to get into philanthropy, here's how you do it. Right. Um, and so that was kind of how we got started. Yeah. I think, too, you don't realize how crucial that idea of community is. And it's crucial for the survival of black people. We largely have organized together to be able to, like, you know, move barriers and mountains. And that's exactly the work that we're currently engaging in. We will have known that if we weren't involved in the Echo and Green or Camelback or a new schools venture fund who focus on young entrepreneurs of color really building organizations and building that community with other organizations, Shavar Jeffries, Tanika, you know, Sharonda, like all we can name a full game of the folks that we were inspired by their work, Mario and Jason. Um, and so Brittany. Brittany. And so being recreating that experience for black men because we know that we're so um low in representation means the world because you're not going to find something like that. You know, right. and that, that's what our guys even testify to our fellows that are in our summer Institute saying that they don't have communities and spaces like that among black men where they can be this vulnerable or even ex- explore other spaces in which they can have impact. Yeah. And I think the next question you asked was like, what's next? I mean, a brick and mortar summer house space has to be what's next. A space, honestly, like a soul house or a Dumbo house um, where people of color can come and have a space for them. Um, Of course, our focus will always be on education, but it's, you know, summer house, we don't want to just be, and I hate to say this, but limited to that. We really want to start focusing on what it means to just be like a a black entrepreneur in this space and provide resources and support 
to make that happen. So that's the long-term vision for us is we're never going to evolution. Yeah. We're never going to leave education. We're going to always be involved in education, but the other part of it is, you know, how can we recreate ourselves? How can we duplicate ourselves and give young black men and women um, the opportunity to walk into these spaces and places and do some damage. Yeah. You know, like it's nothing like being able to get into a space and, not just hold the door open, but right. bust it down. Right. So that's right. no longer in existence. And I think that is what we feel we get from all of the incubators and fellowship programs we've been a part of is it's not about just holding the door open. It's about, you know, how do we get in here and we really create seismic change mm. that can really move the needle forward? Yeah, I think one best piece of advice we've ever gotten as a team was from Aaron Walker from Camelback. And he said, create a space where it's so unique to you and Rashid's story that no one could ever duplicate it or take it away because it's your imprint. It is your unique blueprint in this system that no one can ever take. So what is your story? Reflect on that and make sure that the fellows that you're producing is a reflection of that journey. And so, yeah. yeah. So just to kind of like I mean, wrap that up. And we just, we just finished up uh, our first in-person experience with our guys yeah. and to hear them talk about the fact that now they feel like their dreams are valid. Right. Like just their dreams are valid. Not even that they could do the work, but just like, yo, I've had big dreams forever. And this is the first place where I felt that they were affirmed hearing guys stories about like how they came here. And now they finally like see themselves fully. Right. It's right. just like, yo, like that wasn't the goal. Right. You know, but like, there's so many things that we get as a byproduct of, I won't even say doing the right thing, but doing the things that feel right to do mm-hmm. that had that honestly put a battery in both our bags. Like, okay, I got to make sure these guys win too. Right. You know what I mean? Like, it's not even just about, you know, the money we're able to, I mean, well, it is about the money we're able to raise, but it also is about like, how can we utilize those funds to really support these guys and make a space and place for them where they feel, feel seen, valued and heard. Mm. And that is what came through throughout the weekend, this past weekend in Houston, um, time and time again. You all scaled uh, Summer House Institute to a million-dollar organization in a global pandemic in a year. Yeah. Yeah, you say that, it's just like, we we still can't comprehend that, like the way you worded it, but it's true. I mean, you did. So I'm curious, what was that like for you? Because you've talked about pivot, you've talked about, you know, realignment you've talked about vision i mean you you but i mean like you all really in the midst of a global pandemic scaled a brand new organization in a year to become a million dollar organization so my memory is trash i'm gonna start i think that what me and what vince and i have been able to do successfully is build relationships the funders that we have as a result of our previous work came over with us as a result of the relationships we had with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the funders that continue to support us and reach out to other funders to support us are based on the relationship we have with them. So if there's anything that I can stress, I mean, I tell this to my daughter now, it is the value of the relationships that you build yep. and the integrity of your word to get your things done that will benefit you in the long run. Mm-hmm. So when we walk into a place and it's like, People, it's not about people just knowing who you are, but knowing the work that we do, knowing why we're there. Those are the things that like get me excited because that means that we've made the made it more about the work we do than the two of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that I've been wor- like working diligently to like, we can't be the brand. 
right? It has to be the work. The work has to speak for itself, and then it can go from there. But it all really, 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 really um, came as a result of a relationship. There isn't a funder that we don't have a like true relationship with that I can call. We can call their personal phone. Yep. We can, you know, call at any time of the day or night that we can't lean on for advice or support, give us critical feedback. Like, mm-hmm. I think that because of we've been through so much so fast that that space of building relationship came very naturally. And I tell everybody, I told the guys this past weekend, navigating uh, a funder space, I mean, as any person, but especially a black person is like dating, right. right? Like, you know, that first time y'all meet or you go out or whatever, it's like, okay, you know, that was nice. But then how do you follow up? When did your email come by? What did your email say? Sure. What did it look like? Are you inviting them into the process with you? So I think we got really, really good at navigating that space and building relationships and, to the point where I mean, people would even say, like, y'all are our favorite meeting right. <laughs> and the schedule the entire day. Like, funders look forward to talking to us because I feel like they enjoy the dynamic, the brotherhood. And I think it speaks more than what's on paper. You right. feel it, right? When you're actually in person, you feel like these guys are onto something. And you feel the dynamic even between us and the founding of the vision to build something greater. So it's a belief in leadership. Like, you know, if people believe in your leadership, you can go real far, but it is that it's connecting. I was going to say the very exact same thing. The relationship building is crucial. Mm-hmm. This is a, this is a more of a question for uh, you, Rashid, your father of two. How do you lead an organization while still upholding responsibilities of being a dad and, and all of that? I was actually just talking about this earlier with my daughter, but I felt like because she was the first, I was the oldest grandchild. I'm the oldest son. I feel like I had a lot of support the first time around. Mm-hmm. With my son, I don't feel like I don't have the same support, but I feel like now my daughter being five, everyone is doing other things. So like to come back and help me is drastically different. So there's a lot of moving parts. Like my daughter and my son are both on different schedules, trying to navigate work with that. I think I just try to keep the main thing the main thing. Like when it comes to my kids, I'm home. You know, like I, I will do as much as I can in person. If I can't be there in person, it is only because of my kids. And I think that really came from not having my dad around, like not that dynamic really played a lot on me. Um, but I always let them know like, yo, like I'm I'm doing this because I'm doing this for y'all. Like if I can't, if my daughter's about to go to kindergarten, if she doesn't get into a good school, that means that I didn't do my job. Like I work in education. How can that not be a thing? Um, but it's really about just keeping the main thing, the main thing. And, and my heart and my mind is always on like, making sure I do right by these kids. And also understanding that I'm not gonna always get it right, but giving myself the same grace and understanding to just be like, hey, you know, I'm here, I'm doing what I can. And then leaving space and opportunity for even a four-year-old, almost five-year-old to express how she feels. So there's been plenty of times she's told me, you know, that I I love you, but I don't like you right now. And I'm like, that's cool. You know, like I I get it. You know, like I, I can't always be as present I was like to be because we're still doing a lot, but I've had to even hire help to make sure that like, you know, I can do the things I need to do and that they're still, you know, cared for and kept, but it's about the priorities. You know, like my kids are honestly forever all I have in this world. You know, if this, if this all was to go up and smoke tomorrow, they would still be here. So just want to always make sure that they know that they're a priority for me and showing up for them as best I can. Mm. Legacy, yeah. legacy, legacy, legacy. 
Um, I'm really interested in, in when it's all said and done, uh, when you look back, right, what do you hope for one individual legacies and then the collective legacy of the work? I'll just say the work, because I feel like there's going to be so many things that you do on top of Summer House and, and all the impact that you all continuously have. What do you hope for those legacies to be? Whoever wants to start, whoever wants to start. Individual legacy first. Individual legacy is take risk. Um, I feel like I was risk averse a lot of the times, but I was not actually. <laughs> I actually did take the risk when it when the rubber met the road, like believing in yourself and taking a risk on yourself, quitting a job from nine to five to go start something that you're unsure of and be able to survive it for what the past six, seven years and not be able to look back and regret it, right? Change my life change the directory of my life change is going to change my family's life and like moving forward. So, you know what I mean? What my dad and my mom was able to pass on to me in terms of foundational values. Cause I grew up in a two parent household. Um, and my dad is a proud, you know, employee of Syracuse university and he proud himself for working 30 years for an institution. I can say I left an institution where I was working nine to five to invest in a dream that I believe in with somebody else that I believed in so that we can create something bigger. So I feel like I want that to be my legacy. Like even my kids to be like, take a risk on yourself. My dad did it. And you look at the, the fruits of the labor and the impact and the people that say that he he was impacted by. So I would say that, uh, I don't know if you collectively, we could talk collectively, but you want to go individually. Hendrix, what, what would you say that I did? What, what does daddy do for work? You remember? Black for black men. Right. So <laughs> she literally has just gone around talking about I do work for black men. Right. But I think for me, if there's an individual legacy, it would just be I did the shit I said I was going to do. Mm. Like that's been big for me is like I don't care how much it is. I don't care. I, I don't care where it honestly in, ends up leading me. But like I don't want any of them to look at me and be like, yo, like he was just talking shit, mm. you know, like. I did what I said I was gonna do. If I said I would, and that's something that I proud of myself on her is like, yo, if I said I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it. Even if I don't wanna do it, come hell or hot water, if I said it, it's gonna happen. You know what I mean? Like, and that's that's really what I want people to remember is like, yo, th this dude, no matter what he said he was gonna do, he did it. You know, like, he may not have lasted long, he might have stumbled along the way, but he did it. You know, like, I come from a family of people who have done it their own way. So, like, did, when I look back at all the time, it's like, oh, this wasn't just happenstance. You know, like my grandfather doesn't work for anybody. My my grand my my uh, uncle doesn't. My mom doesn't. Um, none of my brothers do. Like no one does. Like we're all just kind of like out here figuring it out ourselves. And so the biggest thing for me is just you know being a person of integrity and doing what I said I was going to do. Collectively, in terms of the work, I mean, and we can probably just you know spitball this, but. I think that I really just want the, I want to look back and be like, yo, like we really do. It's the same thing. Like we do. We said for those guys, because there are guys that came and met us in Houston. And as I'm sitting there listening to their story, I'm like, yo, we going to turn this up for y'all. Like y'all have literally made me feel I, I haven't felt that way in a very long time. I haven't felt that connected to the work in a very long time. But being able to be there with those guys and hearing their stories, I mean, and if we will have another conversation about like the thing that these guys are really experienced. And I'm like, yo, I'm like, yo, I've been through a lot. Like, but I think it all prepared me to be where I'm at. Right. You know, like I can show up as the person I am today because I've been through some shit. 
You know, like, and, and I think that the more you experience things, the more you go through things, not that you have all the answers, but you can at least provide a perspective that people might not understand, have understood before. And so that's really the legacy that I want for myself personally and for the organization is just, we did, we said we was going to do. We said it's going to be an all-fellows retreat in January. It's going to be an all-fellows retreat in January. We said we're going to continue to support these guys all the way through. We're going to support them all the way through, you know, because at this point, it's not about us anymore. Right. It, it, it doesn't matter what we do from here on out if it does if, if the God is not impacted positively by the work that we're trying to do. I think about the Harlem Renaissance, the Black Civil Rights Movement. I think right now our time is the Black social entrepreneurship movement. The fact that we are really partaking and fulfilling the roles and legacies of the Dr. Kings and the Malcolm X, and this is actually actualized through works and organization and actually building systems to topple of other systems that have been counterproductive to people of color. That is going to be our legacy in this, that we literally defied a system, left it, created our own, and actually went back and said, here's the way that we're going to start doing this work so that it actually benefits people of color and people in communities that are underserved. Um, so, you know, all these people left their jobs. <laughs> they risked their lives. They did all the things. And we as Black social entrepreneurs are doing the same exact thing through organization and building these systems so that we can no longer be ruled by this white supremacy and dominant system that tells us that we need a nine to five, that we need to support certain curriculums, that we need certain things for our Black kids, Black and brown kids. No, we're saying no. We're going to show you how to do it. And it's through the support and the legacy that we're doing right now that that's going to make that happen. And I would even add last thing is there's going to come a time where these kids ask us what we did. Exactly. And I don't want my answer to be, well, you know. No, I want to be able to be like, no. Look at exactly what took place. (laughs) Exactly. We put our money where our mouth was, and we actually did the shit we said we was going to do. So my kid, and that's the thing that I feel best about, is my kids can never look back at 2020, 2021, 2022, none of that, and be like, you just sat back and... Watch it happen. And maintain the system. <laughs> oh, man. The onions are starting to get to me in here. <laughs> oh, man. I'm yeah. telling you. I, I, got, I, I think I might have to... Uh, <laughs> I need to stop. Right. <laughs> well, I have no more questions. Uh, <laughs> I have no more questions. Um, what I will say is that for all people who are listening to this podcast right now and want to learn more about uh, all the amazing work that Vince and Rashid are doing, you can find them at summerhouseco.org. That's summerhouseco.org. And you can follow them on Instagram at Summerhouse Institute. And I'm sure if you slid them a DM, they might respond. Vince might not respond, but Rashid oh, would respond. He's one of the hardest people on this me is, ever. This is Hendrix. Yes, my goddaughter. This uh, is my baby girl. <laughs> Hendrix, welcome to the podcast. Hey, hey. <laughs> the smartest four-year-old I know. Absolutely incredible. Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, this is the Black Stage. <laughs> <laughs>